What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's episode is with Kenny Florian. Kenny is an MMA legend, sports broadcaster, and an investor. In this conversation, we discuss getting into MMA, UFC fighter pay, Joe Rogan, the distrust in mainstream media, Bitcoin, central bank digital currencies, inflation, and more. This was an awesome episode. We covered a wide range of topics, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. Whoop is a 24-7 personalized fitness wearable that's here to help you improve your recovery, sleep, fitness, and health. Here's how it works. Each day when you get up, Whoop gives you a recovery score based on your sleep, resting heart rate, respiratory rate, and heart rate variability. Your score lets you know how to approach your day, whether you should push yourself during your workout or activity, or if you should skip the gym and take a rest day. You wear your Whoop on your wrist, bicep, or now within one of their new smart clothing garments called Whoop Body. The band connects with an app on your phone and automatically measures your heart rate, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. The band also automatically detects and classifies your workouts, so there's never an issue in forgetting to press go on a run anymore. You can then analyze your activity and recovery levels in your app. There's also a ton of coaching features within it like Strain Coach, which gives you target workout exertion goals tailored to your body's recovery level for that day. Those goals can change over the course of the day depending on how active you've been. That coaching is where Whoop really shines. Whether you're interested in how CBD or alcohol impacts your sleep and recovery, or are wondering how long of a run you should go on, Whoop is there to provide you with personalized data to make sure you're aware of the impact these decisions have on your body. Whoop is offering 15% off their all-new Whoop 4.0 right now with the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P.com and enter Joe at checkout to save 15%. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is FTX. I'm sure you've heard of them by now, whether it's because of their partnership with the Miami Heat, Golden State Warriors, the MLB, or Formula One, or maybe you've seen their legendary Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. Whatever it may be, it's obvious that FTX is dominating the crypto conversation in sports. FTX US is a safe, regulated way to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Plus, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than any other exchange on the market. You can even buy NFTs on the FTX app from top ETH and Solana collections without getting hit with fees. Simply put, FTX wants to make crypto exposure accessible, easy, and secure. Download the FTX app on your smartphone today. Use code JOEPOMP, J-O-E-P-O-M-P, for a discount on trading fees, and start building your portfolio in less than three minutes. It's that easy. All right, let's get into today's episode. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, everyone. I have Kenny Florian here today, MMA legend. Uh, Kenny, what's going on, man? How are you? Hey, Joe. How you doing, man? Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm doing well. I hope you are too. All right. I want to talk about a bunch of different things today. We were just chatting before this and we were saying like, there's not necessarily a script per se, but I think we can cover a lot when it comes to the MMA, kind of the UFC and some of the pay stuff going on. Bitcoin, I know you're you're a Bitcoiner at heart and some of the, the stuff going on in the macro economy. But before we get there, maybe it's helpful just so people that maybe don't know who you are, get a better understanding of your perspective, just like a little background on who you are, where you came from, all that type of stuff. Sure. I'll try to keep it as brief as possible. Yeah. So grew up outside of the Boston area, one of six kids. My dad was a physician, ended up going to Boston College after high school, graduated from BC. I played soccer there and then kind of reconnected with martial arts, got into jiu-jitsu, became a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, started competing in mixed martial arts just kind of as a trial thing, ended up getting invited onto season one of The Ultimate Fighter, ended up getting to the finals of that season and was offered a contract with the UFC after that. And and fought in the UFC for several years. And now I do commentary work. I did commentary work for the UFC for a long time. Now I do commentary work for the PFL, the Professional Fighters League, and also do a show called BattleBots on Discovery Channel. I have my own podcast with John Anik and became a Bitcoiner, I guess, in 2017. So I've been in that space for a little while, and it's been pretty awesome to see how that has grown. And initially kind of got into that almost as a bet, like, hey, let's see if I can make some money. And then I think like so many stories, it drags you down the rabbit hole. 
and you see just how powerful that technology is and how game changing it is. And I think we're still seeing that. And I believe it's still early. Yeah, I agree. And I could tell you're in the media because you're obviously media trained. That was a a two to three decade answer in 60 seconds. (laughs) Very short and sweet. (laughs) Yeah, I can always tell with who comes on the podcast, like who has done media work before, because some of them will drag (laughs) out, you know, like 10 minutes and then some are like a minute and a half. So I appreciate it. But all right, let's talk about MMA for a second. Talk to me about the ultimate fighter, right? So the reality show. I don't think most people realize this, like, Everyone talks now about Formula One and Drive to Survive and all these other kind of reality-based television shows that are blowing up sports. And now the PGA Tour is going to do it and tennis is going to do it. But I always point back to The Ultimate Fighter because it really helped the UFC, in my eyes at least, get off the ground and, and really start to make waves. Talk to me about what that experience was like for you. Yeah, I think that's really accurate. The Fertitta brothers had purchased the UFC and they were owners of the station casinos in Las Vegas. And they had invested, I think, an additional $40 million or maybe had purchased the UFC for like $40 million. And their effort was basically like, okay, let's see if we can get some eyes on this. Let's turn this into a reality show. That's when kind of reality shows were just kind of just coming on the scene. And they invested a bunch of money into this show. And I don't think anybody really knew what was going to happen, if it was going to take off or not. It was on a network called Spike TV back in the day. And even me, when they were filming it, I had no idea as to whether this was going to be a big deal or not. I think that we were really lucky that on that night that I lost in the finals, we had an amazing fight between Stefan Bonner and Forrest Griffin, where people were literally calling each other and telling like, hey, you got to check this fight out. It's on Spike TV. And the viewership just kind of jumped at an insane rate as they headed into the second and third round. And the sport kind of blew up overnight because of that one fight. I also think that that reality show, that first season that we were on, it allowed people to kind of connect to each and every fighter. You know, whoever you were, whatever your background was, wherever you were from, you could find some kind of connection to that fighter in some way. And I think that certainly helped get the audience to be connected to the fighter, to see that we weren't just out there brawling, you know, and got off a bar stool and just started throwing down. These were people from many different backgrounds who had been competing in martial arts or mixed martial arts for a long time, who have dedicated a large part of their life to the sport. I think that was admirable to a lot of people. And I think it was just simply very entertaining for a lot of people. We had a lot of crazy characters on that season. Yeah. I think it was John McCain who said way back in the day, like it was human cockfighting, right? That was him. Exactly. Yeah. And I always point to that too. It's funny you say that because I feel like putting the personalities and giving people like an image of what these guys, you specifically, but everyone was going through was like really helpful, right? It wasn't, Hey, these guys are just animals that go in a cage and just try to beat each other up. They're human beings that are sacrificing a lot, training, they have families, they're trying to make money, they're trying to do all these things. So like, it's an interesting case study because everyone talks about it now, 15 years later, maybe even more of like the playbook. And it's like, eh, the UFC kind of did that like a long time ago. So it's super interesting to see like other sports roll this out too. A hundred percent. And you bring up a good point too, is that the UFC kind of ran towards regulation and it's kind of, I guess, maybe a similar situation that's playing out with Bitcoin in some ways. In order to gain greater adoption or acceptance, the UFC went the way of getting it regulated. They went the way of the government. And unfortunately, you know, for better or worse, they did that. And I think it made everyone kind of accept it a lot quicker and it was a lot easier for people to digest, I think. And I think that it allowed it to be regulated across the country. It was just a few states at first. And once kind of the large commissions like New Jersey and Nevada got on board, it was a much easier process to getting it accepted all over the country. Yep. So I want to talk about fighter pay for a second. It's become an obvious topic when you have Francis Ngannou, who I had on the podcast before. Obviously, he has a, I don't know if it's called a holdout per se, but some sort of issue ongoing with the UFC. And other fighters have mentioned this. And you have guys like Jake Paul on the outside looking in saying the same kind of stuff. In your eyes, like what's going on here? Is there a case to be made? Is this just kind of nonsense and people are trying to build a business? Or like, what's your viewpoint? Because I think you have a very unique perspective as a former fighter, but also someone who's involved on the business side also. Yeah. You know, listen, I, I think that this is something that happens, right, in all of sports. You have your athlete and the agent that's representing the athlete who believes that their athlete deserves more money based on who they are, based on what they've accomplished. 
and the UFC or the organization in question thinks a little bit differently. I don't know how far off they are, you know, the UFC and Francis Ngannou, but the facts are Francis Ngannou is a very popular UFC heavyweight champion and who really isn't the kind of guy that has got himself into trouble. He's not out there talking trash. He's a real respectful guy who, in my mind, from what I hear, really has been nothing but nice and has always performed really well. And you look even at his last fight where he fought a beast in Cyril Gunn, he apparently competed with a torn ACL or a badly injured knee anyway. I think a lot of fighters would have probably pulled out, especially given the stakes. And that was his last fight on his contract. And he went out and competed anyway, really gambling and betting on himself. He ended up getting the win in a very close fight. And he feels that he should be paid what he deserves. And negotiating with the UFC is pretty brutal. I think all the way from the top and, and the people that run the UFC, it can be difficult to deal with. Why is it so brutal? Because they have so much leverage? They, they do. They have a tremendous amount of leverage and their contracts are set up in a lot of ways that you kind of have to keep fighting for them in, in a way. And it's tough because we are seen as independent contractors and we're not unionized. And at the same time, we don't get a lot of the benefits that other athletes get. So the ball is in their court and it can be quite challenging. Now, there are other organizations that are getting more popular, like the Professional Fighters League that I work for now, and you have Bellator out there. So it is a competitive or semi-competitive market now. Of course, the UFC is a leader in that regard. They've been around the longest. They have established themselves over a $4 billion value now. So they're a tremendous league. And, you know, for a lot of the fighters are saying, okay, well, if you guys are worth this much, and if you guys are bringing in this amount of money, why aren't we getting the same equivalent portion that some of the other athletes get? And I guess it's been shown that some of the other athletes in the NFL or Major League Baseball are getting a much larger percentage of the pie, whereas the fighters who are in a really tough position, because obviously, they're sacrificing their brains and bodies to compete for them. And, you know, some of them aren't getting what they feel they deserve. And again, I'm biased. Obviously, I competed in the UFC, but I I do feel that fighters should be getting paid more. And it's a tough thing because they will play hardball. There isn't this kind of soft negotiation or friendly negotiation. A lot of times it's like we're cutting you off and we're going to be dicks about it. And we're going to play hardball until you succumb to the pressure and, and give in. Yeah. So I read this stat off to Francis when he was on the podcast, because he was obviously going in detail about the situation he's facing and whatnot. But if you look at the four major sports leagues here in the United States, the NFL, the MLB, the NBA, and the NHL, each of their players receive basically anywhere from 48% to 54% of the total revenue. They have a union, right? So they go negotiate these things in a collective bargaining agreement. And that's mm. what they get. The UFC, I think it was in 2019, the reported numbers were that they paid out about 16% of revenue to fighters. So it's a tremendous drop-off. But I would love for people who don't know, for you to help us understand how exactly this works, right? So there are fighters that are in these um, a little bit smaller leagues, the PFL, Bellator, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And then say they win a bunch of fights, Does the UFC essentially just come in and say, hey, we want you to fight it for the UFC now. You negotiate a contract. You get paid X, Y, and Z for however many fights. And then there's no ability to renegotiate. And I'm assuming they don't pay for healthcare, right? They don't pay for training. They don't pay for any stuff outside of the actual fights. Okay. So it's tough because the UFC kind of likes to keep people in the dark about a lot of things. Yeah. So I would say everybody's contract is probably similar, but then you kind of have the top tier guys and that could vary significantly. The UFC may have perks for certain people like private jets or you get a percentage of the pay-per-view or they give you a stipend monthly. It varies. Um, so, so Conor McGregor is treated as slightly different than someone who's won one or two fights. No question about it. And, and right. And he's like the biggest name in the sport, yep. right? One of the, one of the, the biggest athletes in the sport. But what's interesting is that he's made most of his money outside of the UFC. Yeah. You know, like, yes, he's making hundreds of millions of dollars. Boxing. Yeah. Alcohol. Right. Now, he, he doesn't do too shabby. He's definitely making tens of millions of dollars, I would assume, fighting. But most of his money is made outside of the sport by sponsors, as you said, or his own businesses that he's running, that he's invested in. And of course, those things wouldn't have been possible without the UFC. But it's not like he's got a Mahomes $100 million contract with the UFC where he doesn't need any sponsors if he doesn't want to. So it really does vary. And I think it works out to the UFC's advantage that a lot of people 
don't know what's going on a lot of ways. They don't want people to know how much they're making. And and they have the UFC fighters themselves kind of get on board with that as well. So it's tricky. It's really all over the place as far as how the contracts are structured. And in a lot of ways, you can go back. Let's say you have a six-fight contract, and let's say you're killing it after three fights. You could potentially go to the UFC and restructure that contract. It depends who you are, how you're doing, how well that negotiation is done, how much the UFC likes you. It's definitely political. There's no question about it. Yeah, Francis, you know, I don't want to keep bringing him up every time, but we talked about this. And one of the things he said was that he's left, he estimates about $10 million on the table by not agreeing to renegotiate his deal. And it seems like most of it was due to the fact of the kind of the independent contractor label. He believes that he should have the ability as an independent contractor to go box or go do other things, right? If you're not going to provide all of the things that a regular mm. employee would get, then he should be allowed to do other things also. And he says that they've tried to renegotiate a few times and I probably left $10 million. Whether it fluctuates a couple million dollars or not, I don't think it really matters because it's a lot of money, right? So I think in that context, it's crazy. But all right, let's talk about Bitcoin. Yeah. When did you first Definitely. hear about Bitcoin? When did you go down the rabbit hole? And just talk me through that whole experience. You know, I I have probably a similar story to a lot of Bitcoiners where initially you heard about it. It was much, much lower than when you bought. And I think it was in 2016, a buddy of mine in Los Angeles where I was living at the time told me about this thing called Bitcoin. He's like, listen, man, it just went down. It's like $72, $75 right now. You should get some. I'm like, okay, well, what is it? Well, what's what's this thing about? And, you know, I, I probably got some terrible explanation of what it was, but I still found it interesting. I said in my mind, I'm like, this is probably never going to work, but I don't know. I'll entertain it. And of course, I, I dragged my feet on it, kind of forgot about it. And then I looked at the price one day and it was like, I don't know, over maybe $800 or something like that. I had like a few properties at the time and just I don't know. I, that was kind of more on, on my radar, real estate and things like that. And I did a little bit more research and ended up getting into, I went with like a cheaper option. Someone was like, just get Ethereum, you know, get Ethereum. So I bought a bunch of Ethereum. It was cheaper. And then over time, I kind of started looking at Bitcoin more. And I said, well, there's a reason why Bitcoin is more expensive. Let me get into this. And I sold all of my Ethereum, bought a bunch of Bitcoin in 2017. The rest is history. And and I've, you know, I, I definitely invested in other things. But, you know, over time, I've become strictly all Bitcoin. And I've been purchasing Bitcoin, I guess, since 2017 until, I guess, last week. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So... <laughs> It sounds like you came to make some money and then you realized, hey, wait, this is really cool. You went down the rabbit hole, you read a bunch of stuff, you listened to a bunch of podcasts and were like, okay, wait, this is way bigger than just making a few bucks, right? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I blame guys like you and your brother, you know, those guys, you come for the money and then you, you kind of stay for the freedom and everything else that comes with it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And that's when you talk to basically, I'd say like over 50% of Bitcoiners, that's really what happens is like, you know, everyone comes <laughs> to make a little money and then they're like, wait, this is way bigger than I might've imagined. But okay. So yeah. when it comes to investing today, are you mostly looking at Bitcoin now real estate too or stocks or anything else also? Just talk me through kind of how you think about that. I still look at real estate. I don't have as much as I used to, but I've put a lot of it into Bitcoin. I still think it's very early. I think it's really what's attractive about it is, and, and this isn't you know a, a new thought or anything like that, but it really is the only property that you can truly own that can't be seized, that really can't be taken as long as you're smart about it and and know what you're doing. So I see a lot of advantages with that. And I also, you know, the fact that I think it's still such an early technology that people really aren't onto, I see more potential in that than say, you know, I guess anything that I have my money in. And I've made a lot of moves because of that. Whatever money I've saved in retirement and all those things have kind of gone the way of Bitcoin. Yeah. And that's a good point because I want to talk a little bit about athletes and Bitcoin specifically because we've seen a bunch of athletes getting into it, but specifically on the point of why Bitcoin is important from an ownership perspective. Even if you know we're recording this podcast on February 15th and yesterday news came out of Canada, right, that the government, essentially what they were doing was they were going to use emergency powers to suspend the bank accounts or the assets of people that are associated with government protests, right? They were going to label you as a terrorist, seize your assets without any trial, any due process, no penalties, anything associated with that, right? So they literally took control of 
people's money, people's assets, people's lives, right? And when you start to think about Bitcoin, the thing I always talk about is like, there is no marketing agency, right? There's no balance sheet for people to go draw money from and spend it on a Super Bowl ad. There's none of these other things. And there's companies, right, associated with that that do a good job of helping. But ultimately, Bitcoiners are the marketing team. Right. They're the ones that go out and talk about it. They're the ones that tell everyone about it to show people why it's important. And I don't think there's probably anything more important right now than what's going on in Canada and places like that, because it shows the exact reason as to why this asset is so important when it comes to freedom and personal financial responsibility. Precisely. I think that, and in a lot of ways, governments and governmental policies have been great marketing you know, ploys as well, because they're seeing that, wait a sec, this is an actual thing. Governments can come in and step out of bounds and seize our assets. Everything from imminent domain to freezing money, these are things that happen daily, not only in places all over the world, but even in, in the United States as well. So I think that Satoshi Nakamoto was very much aware of these things and perhaps aware of maybe the increasing control that governments were going to take. And of course, you know, you have other books like, you know, The Sovereign Individual that talked a lot about this and kind of talked to the potential future playbooks of a lot of governments and, and where things were headed. So I was not smart enough to see that. But over time, you hear the Bitcoiners talk about it, and they really have been very prescient about a lot of these things and have been able to predict a lot of what has been happening. And it's been so educational. But I think for a lot of people, if you know what Bitcoin is, you see the reality of it and why it's so necessary. And I laugh all the time when people are like, well, Bitcoin isn't needed or it's an old technology or it's not necessary. And you're like, are you seeing what's happening out there? Uh, you know, and it, this isn't, you know, conspiracy theory or making things up. These are real things that are happening right now in this world. And it's amazing that more countries aren't even on board with this. And I think it's going to take a little bit more time. But once they see it, they're not going to be able to unsee it. And I think Bitcoin is going to explode. Well, one of the things I spend a lot of time thinking about, and, and to be quite honest, whether people believe it or not, it's the reason why myself, my brother, and other people do a lot of education-based stuff is because it's all relative to the education level For right, sure. from a financial perspective. And people sit in an echo chamber, right? You're on Twitter, you're with your friends, you're educated, whatever, but you have this certain view of the world. And a lot of times it's not accurate. And in a lot of cases, it's not even close to accurate. So for example, most people don't know that about 50% of the US population doesn't own stocks. They don't own a single stock, right? And about 75 to 80% of the US population don't own a meaningful amount of stocks. The most of the stock market, call it 90%, is controlled by the top five to 10% of the individuals, right? So things like inflation are good for them. They lose some purchasing power, but their assets balloon in value. They go up 30%, 35%, 40% in a year, and they're richer than ever. Right. And the people that it hurts the most are the people who don't understand what's happening financially. Like I, I always use the example, if you went and asked random people on the street in certain areas, they would literally not know, most of them literally do not know that the government can just decide to go and make more money and put it into supply and it makes their dollars worth less. And I think this stuff is really important, obviously. And whether you end up deciding that Bitcoin is the solution or you want to invest in real estate, right? You have experience with real estate and you say, hey, that's a good inflation hedge. I want to go look at that instead. I think it's really important for people to just understand the options, the impact that this has on this money. Because everyone sees a stimulus check, they say $500, $600 thousand dollars like this is fantastic but ultimately look what position it has gotten us into and that's not to say it shouldn't happen right because i think you need to be careful about how people are protected during a pandemic where people are forced to stay at home right if you don't allow people to work you don't allow them to do certain things then you have to kind of give them some money to survive but you take the example of like afghanistan and the u.s withdrew our troops last year right and western union who is one of the largest remittance payment networks in the world literally withdrew from the area and said, we don't have, we have too much demand. We don't have enough agents. We're going to shut down our business in Afghanistan. Imagine that literally an employer, a business that has made their reputation on being available for people to do that shuts down when it's needed most. And again, I don't think there was any better marketing for Bitcoin than that, because ultimately when people needed them, they weren't there. And there's countless other examples, right? So the other thing I think a lot about is central bank digital currencies. Right. And I would love to get your take on kind of if that's something you see as being helpful, if that's something you think that will happen and just your overall your overall thoughts. Yeah. Uh, listen, I, I think there's a lot to unpack there. It's always been an information game. People seem to forget about that. Those that are privy to the information are going to win. 
the key is finding where the where the right information is, you know, and I think there's so much of it out there which is both beneficial and confusing for a lot of people. Information travels so fast right now, but distilling what information to listen to and and what is real, what's not is huge. And it does take some critical thinking. It takes investigation. And I think a lot of people are just simply lazy. And, And it's taken me a long time to really understand and digest it. And in doing that, it's made me that much more bullish and that much more confident in my investments in Bitcoin. But- well, I would say the other thing too, on top of that is I totally agree that a lot of it is information-based and people are inherently lazy. Yeah. Right? I don't think I don't think people say that enough of just like most people don't want to do these things right. because they're difficult or they just don't have the time. But ultimately back to the time perspective, like a lot of people are just, they just want very simple things. They want to be happy. They want to be healthy. They want to have enough money to survive, have their family, all this stuff, right? So when you think of that, that context, like, this isn't on the top of their priority list, and it really should be because those are all the things that are going to help you get there. Definitely. And, and I guess I would add to the fact that also, you know what, like understanding fiat and the Fed and the government and history and value, these aren't easy topics. These are these can be somewhat complicated to understand, and it does take time. I know it's taken time for me, you know, like I'm just about to finish the sovereign individual for the second time <laughs> to really get it. But anyways, yeah. So in regards to digital currencies that are organized and put out by governments, I think it's a terrible idea. It's a terrible idea for the citizens of those countries. I think that, again, something like that gives governments way too much control. Like they have a lot of control now. They would have significantly more control in the future. And I think, again, that would be a tremendous marketing campaign for why Bitcoin is important and why you should have some. So, but it comes down to like, where are people getting the information? Like, what is your goal as an individual, as a citizen? And it takes, again, some thinking. And If you are government and you want to control citizens, you control their money. And it's being done already, but they would up the ante significantly with CBDCs. So I think that it's a little worrisome for me, you know, personally, but I also have Bitcoin. I fear for, you know, other, whether it's family members, friends who aren't into it, who, who, for whatever reason, aren't into Bitcoin and perhaps trust the government too much. And, you know, we should all remember that absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's just the nature of the game. Anyone can be corrupted. I think that's what makes Bitcoin, I think, so special and so unique. Yeah, it's it's difficult for me when it comes to central bank digital currencies to just say, hey, it's the worst idea ever. I think it's a really bad idea. I'll even say horrible idea. But ultimately, I think that it could probably help some people. Right? Sure. If you think about regions in China, and China is not a good example given their government structure and kind of the things that are going on over there. But a large percentage, I don't know if it's 25 or 40% or 50%, is unbanked or underbanked. Right. So a digital alternative gives them access to that. But ultimately, to your point, people don't understand what this is going to open up. People think that the government has some control over them now, but when you think about monetary policy, it's still very structured in a very, what we'll call like a legacy way. You go to a meeting, everyone listens to see if he says hawkish or dovish, and then the interest rates change and we go and we we try to make trades based off of that. And risk assets trade another way and defensive assets trade a different way. And I think ultimately, like, we're going to look back on that and laugh in years because if central bank digital currencies go through, what people are going to have in general is like, there's going to be expiring dollars, right? They're going to literally be able to give you money. Say your stimulus check, you get $600. But if you don't spend it within the next two weeks, it's gone. Right? So it forces people to go spend money, increases the velocity of money. It's helpful to them, maybe not so helpful to you. There's going to be personalized monetary policy, yeah. right? So specific interest rates set to the individual, not necessarily the population of the United States. They're going to be able to seize your money in a much more efficient way than they could today, whether it's for doing something illegal or just non-compliance or protests like we're seeing in Canada. So there's a bunch of different reasons. And I think that these things, they accelerate the adoption of Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? And when you start to think about There's only going to be 21 million. How many have been lost? The kind of current having and everything related to that. I think it gets very interesting very quickly, but I would love to get your opinion on on how much of this is being driven by the distrust, not necessarily in government, but in media, right? Because I think that there's been a outflow of this over the last year specifically. Everything's online, right? Everyone rushed online. E-commerce is up. Social media use is up. Digital payments is up. Everything went online with the pandemic. And it just fast forward everything probably like 10 years. But with that, Everyone's been consuming more information than ever. And I think that people have lost trust, certainly in in certain government actions. 
and again, certainly in the media. Yeah. But I would love to just hear your opinion on kind of what's going on there and how that impacts everything else. I think a lot of people feel like they've been duped. A lot of people feel like they're not getting the real story. I think that's been happening for a long time, but I think it's especially apparent over the last few years since we've been really locked kind of inside and have been consuming so much information in mainstream media or otherwise. So I think that people are kind of seeing what's going on. They're seeing a little bit more propaganda. And I think that they're also realizing that, hey, if you're running a business, which a lot of people either working for businesses or have their own businesses, and they're feeling like they are getting their, you know, the government is turning their backs on them by either limiting what they can do or when they're open or how they're open. I think that that is furthering the distrust that's going on between the citizenry and and the government. I think that people are realizing, wait a sec, maybe the government, they don't have our best interests in mind. Maybe they're just running things and, and not really, you know, they're doing maybe the easiest things or maybe they're seeing more corruption and I think that this has kind of exposed a lot of what's going on, especially, you know, you look at how more people are listening to Joe Rogan than a lot of the mainstream media now. What do you think is going on with Joe Rogan? Do you think that it's simply the case of, hey, he's gotten really big now and we can't control a lot of the narratives and we want to suppress this a little bit? Or do you think that this is actually driven by individuals and people upset with some of the comments that he's said? You know, I, I don't know. It definitely seems like a political hit job for me. You know, I think that Rogan has apologized and obviously he felt that he was in the wrong in in that regard. But I think that's kind of what makes Rogan uh, very approachable and likable in a lot of ways is that he's not afraid to go out there, apologize, say that he was wrong. And he's done that several times now over the last few years. I think he genuinely wants to do better, but he's been providing audiences with for better or worse, a very real view. And they've been able to see different takes. It's not the same viewpoint or the same perspective every single time. I think he has a variety of guests on there. I think he genuinely is a curious individual who is smart, who wants to learn more. And he has a variety of guests. And he surrounds himself with a lot of people that have different perspectives or that have a lot of information in a lot of different areas. And I think his show comes across as way more organic. And when you look at some of the other mainstream media, I'm not going to name names, but some of it comes across as they have an agenda and it's very propaganda based. And you look at the actual facts. I mean, the, the people who own the media, I mean, there's very few companies now, you know, it's like the rich get richer. They're buying more companies. A lot of that has to do with the media and newspapers and all that stuff. So of course, they're going to be pushing their own agenda. That's what's happening here. More people, or I should say fewer people are running the world these days. It's like the bigger companies just keep getting bigger and having a major media source or having a major newspaper or whatever it is just kind of furthers your ability to not only make more money, but also have more power. Yeah. I I typically avoid the Rogan conversation on Twitter because there's just not enough room to add nuance. nuance right? And, and there's plenty of nuance when it goes with him because if you think about what's been happening, especially over the last few weeks, right? Like you can think that what he said was wrong or some of the things that he has said is wrong. Certainly there's, it's maybe a little bit helpful in certain circumstances with context, but generally I think people would agree that what he said is wrong, yeah. right? He shouldn't have said certain things, but you can also agree that he's not racist. Absolutely. He's a genuinely good guy and that he is intellectually curious and that he tries to do his best. And I think that's kind of where I sit on the issue, right? I think, hey man, you probably said some things that you would cringe at today that you'd see and you're like, damn, why did I say that? That was a decade ago. Maybe it was somewhat acceptable then and it's not today. And I really wish I would and, said yeah. that. and to his point, he has said that he apologized and did these things. And then you have some people like maybe on the far right that are like, you can't apologize. They're going to come after you. They're going to kill you. And I get it. Right. But ultimately, I just think that's who he is. He, he, he wants to do the right thing. He's trying to be genuine. He wants to be honest with people. And people forget he does such a wide range of topics. He's one of the only people in the world that I think can sit down with someone like yourself or someone else in the UFC and say, hey, what about this elbow? How'd you throw this kick? Right. And then go sit down with Elon Musk and talk about space. Right. <laughs> right? And it's exactly. just like it's two completely different ends of the spectrum. And he does a really good job at it. And the other thing I don't think people realize is in a lot of cases, he doesn't use notes. He literally sits there and just has a conversation with people. Yeah. And the part I always laugh at when it comes to him is that if the people that are complaining a lot about him, certainly there's things that he said that people are like, all right, that's not right. And I agree with that. But ultimately, the people that are complaining about the misinformation stuff probably haven't listened to that many Joe Rogan shows because 
that's like 1% of all the episodes, right? Right. And I agree. But ultimately, like, where does that train stop? Because if you look at any news outlet in the world, left, right, center, doesn't matter what your political party is, they have spewed misinformation, right? They've been wrong about things. And I think when you think about it in the context of Rogan, to your point, I think that people like him because of that, because he's super genuine, because he's willing to apologize, because he is willing to bring guests on from other sides that he may not necessarily agree with, because he's intellectually curious and so forth. And I think what we're seeing is people have really gone towards that. I don't know what his exact numbers are, but I remember seeing a chart a long time ago about it was basically like dwarfing every news channel in the world, <laughs> right? And I think that that really speaks to where we are as a society of people like people that are genuine, people that are willing to apologize, and they're searching out for that. No question. I mean, it's a war for information. It's a war for advertising. It's a war for audiences. And if I was a former, or if I was a mainstream media source, and I saw that I'm losing a huge part of my audience, and it's going to some podcaster, I would try to take that guy down too, especially if you could combine forces with other mainstream media and find a way to take this guy down. And I think that that's really what's happening at the end of the day. And it's unfortunate, but I think it shows just how powerful Joe Rogan has become over the years. And he's built it up, you know, little by little, then has it kind of exploded and exploded again and exploded again. And here he is, even if Spotify decided to let him go, there was some other company that was already offering over $100 million to sign with them. So he's in a pretty good spot. He's kind of reached that almost untouchable status in some ways. But, and again, it, it does show his humility. Like he didn't have to apologize if he didn't want to, but he did anyway. And I think that's a testament to Joe Rogan and, and what he's about. So I, I thought that was pretty cool and, and authentic as well. So yeah, it, it's pretty fascinating to see this play out at this point. And I think what it does is also inspire others to want to do similar things. And it's possible to create a very large audience outside of mainstream media. And I think it probably has a lot of mainstream media kind of shaking in their boots, you know? Yeah. There's even news organizations that are doing this now. There's YouTube shows that get more viewers than CNN, Fox, NBC, whatever, right? It doesn't really matter what network it is. When you think about the distribution on the internet, right? It's wide open. Yeah. It's an open protocol, so it can reach millions and billions of people. And then the structure is set up to where you can real quickly, right? So it's, it's a completely different arena. But all right, I want to talk a little bit about athletes and Bitcoin specifically. We've seen this, this trend, I'll call it, over the last year or two years emerge where I think it was Russell Okung was the first one to do it with the Carolina Panthers. He took 50% of his $13 million salary, so $6.5 million in Bitcoin from the Carolina Panthers. And that opened the floodgates. We've seen a bunch of people do it over the last year now. Saquon Barkley came on our show and said he was taking $10 million of his endorsement income in Bitcoin, 100%. There's guys like Odell Beckham who just did it and was in the news and plenty more. The list goes on. Why do you think athletes specifically are so interested in Bitcoin and are kind of leading the charge on this? I'm kind of smiling to myself thinking, man, I wish I did that in 2011 when I retired. It really comes down to this, you know, especially for any job, for any athlete, but especially those that are literally putting their bodies on the line. Football players, mixed martial artists, boxers, we put our bodies through hell, man. And I can't tell you how many stories I hear of people, I guess in both realms of like, you know, the NFL player who decided to go in and, and buy a big restaurant or a mall or something and it all just failed. And now, you know, there are millions of dollars in the hole or either now they're bankrupt or they lost millions, whatever it is, or people that don't have any kind of plan for what they're going to do with their money. And it can be challenging finding the right stock or the right fund or the right you know, money manager or trusting those people or trusting those stocks or trusting those organizations to put your money into. And I think for a lot of people who see it, who have gotten the right information and have understood a fraction of what Bitcoin is about, see the light on it and go, wait, wait a sec, this is where I want my money. It's going to grow. They believe in it. They see the benefit of it. They see how robust it is and how safe it is. And you know, you want your money to grow and they're seeing how things really are getting more expensive. Things aren't getting cheaper. Things are getting more expensive. And you look at things like inflation numbers or you go to the damn supermarket, you know, you see it. And to put your money in something where it's going to grow and you feel that you're not getting screwed. I think athletes are willing to do that. I think for mixed martial artists specifically, I'll answer this. You have to have an open mind. You have to 
look into things that are going to help you as a fighter. You have to be able to look at yourself honestly. Otherwise, you're going to get embarrassed on Saturday night in the cage. So you have to look at yourself very honestly and say, what is the best thing for me? And sometimes, I'd say a lot of times, you need that open mind. And I think having an open mind is the key to gaining the right information, becoming a more intelligent individual, and seeing things like Bitcoin. Looking outside of the box is huge. And I think for mixed martial artists, they're also willing to bet on themselves. I mean, you look at what we put our, our bodies through. I think that's huge. And if you are into Bitcoin, you need to have that skin in the game. You need to be willing to bet on yourself. And I think that's enticing for them as well. And, and I think it's almost like I don't have a lot of faith in people who are managing companies or governments and things like that. I, I would be way more willing to bet on a decentralized concept like Bitcoin and you see how it's grown and what it's done and what it is doing for people all over the world. I think that's very attractive to, to mixed martial artists, athletes, and to people all over the world. So the inflation number came out last month at 7.5%, which was a 40-year high. You believe that or you think it's higher or lower? I am sure that it's probably higher than that. I think it comes down to like, what are you measuring and, and how are you putting these numbers together? And again, these are government numbers, right? I'm not going to you know, tell you all the story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to finagle the numbers the best that I can to say as bad as it is. They're open about it yeah. too. They go on and they'll, they post about every time that the criteria changes, right? Or the methodology changes. And it happens more frequently than right. I think people imagine. But when it comes to that, like the easiest thing to look at is shelter. Right. So the official number seven and a half percent shelter, I don't think most people realize literally makes up a third of the index. So 33% of the index is from shelter and they have shelter increasing at four and a half percent year over year right now. Like anyone who has bought a house, looked at an apartment, tried to rent anything knows that that is inaccurate. Yeah. Rentals are up 18% yet and home prices are up 19% over the last year. So that alone, that's a third of the index. It's got to be much higher than seven and a half percent. Absolutely. And I think, you know, obviously Michael Saylor has become quite the poster boy over the last couple of years. But when you see major companies that are putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Bitcoin because of that very reason, again, that is tremendous marketing right there. It's like, wait, if these major companies are putting not, you know, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars, but tens of millions, in some cases, right, over a billion dollars like Tesla, like, there's something to that. That is a very powerful message. Like if these companies are doing that, well, then they probably believe that those numbers are a little bit higher and really seeing it on the ground for their businesses and, and understanding that holding cash is like having a melting ice cube and they need to preserve their purchasing power and preserve their company the best that they can. And when you see these major companies putting in Bitcoin, I think that's a big sign. Yeah. Sailor's obviously become somewhat of a legend for this, right? For good or bad, depending on how it works out for him. But when it comes to him too, like he not only had a lot of conviction, I think his company was stuck in somewhat of a rut, right? He said, Hey, look, our stock price has traded within this range for a long period of time. This is an asset I really believe in. I'm going to go all in. But I think most people forget too, because people say this to me all online all the time. Like I don't buy MicroStrategy to be a Bitcoin ETF. And people don't remember that before he went and did this, right? So he went to the board and he said, hey, guys, this is what I'm thinking about doing. But he actually offered to buy back shares from anyone who wanted to sell them, current shareholders, at a premium to what the stock was trading at. So he said, I'll buy them off your hands at a premium if you don't want to be involved in this, if you don't believe in Bitcoin, if you don't believe in this other stuff. So I think ultimately, like at this point, if you're involved in it and, and you're still complaining, like you're complaining about nothing because he's given plenty of time for people to understand what's going on. But it's fascinating to see how this will play out, not only this year, but, but for the years to come. Definitely. How do you think about adoption? Right. So Bitcoin, if you look at most charts and, and digital assets in general, we're kind of at like 1998, 1999 when it comes to the Internet. Right. And most of these technologies get adapted on an S-curve. So we see kind of parabolic movement within the next, call it two, three, four, five years. And then there will obviously be some leveling off once the majority of people are onboarded. Do you think that this is something where we wake up in, in 2030, 2030? 32, 2035, and, and the majority of the population within the internet is onboarded? Or do you think it takes longer than that? I think so. I, I think that sounds about right. And clearly, I'm invested in Bitcoin and, and believe in it. So obviously, I'm biased. But yeah, I do. I, I think that we're going to be talking about a completely different price trajectory over the next five years. I think that is clear. I, I think that everything from other businesses, you know, other larger businesses to funds, like it's all moving in that direction. It, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. 
And I think that win is definitely within the next five years. I think we'll be in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range, maybe a million dollar range for Bitcoin. But I don't love giving predictions. It's hard to obviously predict a proper number or even get into the range. But I do think that we're starting to see Bitcoin on a whole different level, even geopolitically, like states are trying to get paid in Bitcoin or moving towards that. It started with like individual states. It continues going that way. Mayors, governors are understanding that not only is that good for their state, but it's good for them to get reelected and and mentioning Bitcoin. So I, I think the information is spreading. People are understanding the value. And now there's talk about Russia and all that stuff. And once you start getting into that game, the geopolitical game theory is going to play out and it's going to speed up adoption tremendously. I hope, though, that it's the regular people that see the benefit, the small businesses, the individuals that realize that, hey, you know, I should probably get on board before it truly is not affordable. I've seen the price all over the place. You know, now I feel like I'm a combat veteran here in Bitcoin. But I remember when I had bought at the top at like 14,000 and it was like my latest buy or whatever. And I remember seeing it go down, down, down and went all the way down to like the 3000s. And my wife was like, well, so what are you doing here? Like, what are you going to do? And I was like, I want to buy more. And She's like, are you crazy? Like, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a steady form of income that was coming in, but I just felt like I was going to buy more and <laughs> I wanted to buy more and I did and it, and it worked out. But like, I think about how many situations we've been in, you know, over, over the last several years of how Bitcoin has gone up and gone down and gone up. But like these new highs are, are going to be new lows and it continues to grow and it's still early. People still don't know a whole lot about it. It's still playing out globally. And I still think this is just the beginning, man. Yeah, I tend to agree. And it's funny. I was joking about this the other day with my brothers of like, if we would have heard three, four, five years ago that Bitcoin was crashing to 30,000 or crashing to 40,000, <laughs> we would have been fucking over the moon, right? We would have been like, hell right. yeah, fuck yeah, we got this right. So it's funny hearing people like, you know, the extreme, it was like extreme fear on the greed fear meter when the price was like 35,000, 40,000. Yeah. So I think anyone who's lived through those moments of, of watching these major crashes, especially at lower levels, has been rejoicing during this period of time because it's just giving the opportunity to hopefully continue to get more at lower levels. So I think it's a good thing. All right. I'm going to let you go. I have one more question, fight related. Sure. I want to talk about weight cutting. Sure. This shit is fascinating to me. As someone who has never wrestled, someone who has never fought MMA, someone who has never done jujitsu, none of this stuff. <laughs> and I asked because earlier today, I actually, before we did this, I saw a picture of Conor McGregor and it was when he cut down to, I think it was 145. 145, yeah. 145. And I think he usually fights at like 170 or something, so somewhere around there. Yeah, I mean, he's fought at 170. His proper weight class is probably 155, but that has become even very difficult for him to get down to, yeah. Yeah, so I saw him at 145, and everyone should go look it up if you haven't seen it yet. I saw a picture of him at 145 next to 170 weigh-in, and it looks like two completely different people. Like, it looks like it should be illegal to make someone try to cut that much weight. And he obviously was, he ended up fighting, and was okay. And doing all these things. But like the one thing I always hear from people that are in the fight game is like how terrible that is. Like, how bad is it? <laughs> it's horrible. Okay. And and I've done the same thing. And first of all, you know, we, we need to rectify this, Joe. We need to get you and your brothers on the mat and have like a pop boys tournament, see who the best grappler in the family is. So that, that's my goal in the future. We have wrestled plenty, not official, <laughs> not, not official, you know, regulated wrestling matches, but we, we have certainly wrestled. We always joke. I don't know if you remember those Hulk gloves yeah, yeah, yeah. back in the day. We used to strap those things on in the basement and, and just get after it. But yeah, I just always look at people when they cut weight and I'm like, that shit is crazy. I don't think I could do it. It's brutal, man. So I have one of the only or or maybe one of two UFC fighters to fight in four different weight classes. On the Ultimate Fighter Season 1, I fought at 185 pounds. I was probably a chubby 182 pounds. And guys are cutting down. If you're fighting at 185 pounds, guys are cutting down from like 215, okay? It, it's an, It's insane. So there's the losing of weight where you're dieting just like any other normal human being. We're like, I'm going to lose weight slowly. But then there's weight cutting, which involves dehydrating yourself down to make the weight that you're going to fight at. And 
the advantage of that is like if you have two masses that are colliding, the heavier mass should win over time, right? So that's what they're looking for in an advantage. They want to be the heavier guy. They want to be able to be the stronger guy. So every little advantage counts at the highest level. So people are going to try to push it. And fighters have the mentality of, I'm not going to quit. I'm tougher than you. And I will out-tough anything. So they'll, they'll suffer to make that weight. So I fought as low as 145 pounds. I went from like 185 down to 145. To put things into perspective, at 168 pounds, I was measured at 9% body fat. And I still had to get down to 145. It was the most miserable thing I've ever done to the point where I remember Joe Rogan had a, a microphone in my face. He was asking me a question and I had lost hearing in my ear. I could not hear anything that he was saying. I could not hear anything that was going on. My ears were totally blocked from dehydration. I was dizzy. I was like ready to faint. I could not like walk without help. It's really bad. Your kidneys, your liver are taking a beating in that process. So yeah, it's horrible for you, not good for your brain. You have to make sure you rehydrate properly, get all the stuff in you to kind of be able to compete the next day, but not good for your brain, not good for your body, man. So you start at 180 or whatever yeah. around there, right? You get down to 145 yeah. and there's dieting and then there's weight cutting, right? For dehydration. Yes. How low are you getting off dieting? And then like how many pounds do you still have when it's dehydration phase? Right. So it depends. It's going to depend because it, it basically comes down to the percentage of your body weight. The heavier you are, the more that you can cut in theory. The more muscular you are, the more water your body can hold. So again, I probably... I'm going to cut water down from like 163 down to 145. So I'll lose like for my fights at 145 pounds, I cut about 14 pounds in 24 hours. That's crazy. And what's the craziest thing you've had to do to cut weight? Is it like just strictly sauna and like running around or is it stuff outside that? Yeah. I remember at one point I stuck a stationary bike in the sauna and I had a sauna suit on. So... Yeah, pretty stupid. <laughs> yeah, that sounds horrible. I do not envy that at all, but I certainly respect it. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> Thanks, man. Good for you, man. All right, I'm going to let you go. I appreciate you doing this. Where can people find you on the internet if they want to follow you for other stuff? For sure. On, on social media, you can find me at, at Kenny Florian. You can check out my website, KennyFlorianMartialArts.com if you're into jiu-jitsu and, and curious about learning. And I have a YouTube channel as well, Kenny Florian. So yeah, man. Joe, thanks so much for having me. Of course, we'll have to do this again soon. For sure. All right, everyone, that's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.